Okay, we are, is this lesson 10, I think? 11. 11. Lesson 11. We are setting new records for slowness in, uh, in our uh, working through church history. I hope you don't mind that too much. We are uh, reading through some of Ignatius, and trust me, we will pick up the pace after this. I just think it's important uh, to spend a little time with the earliest sources we have um, there are just so many other sources later on uh, that we would not be able to spend much time with them, but I think these are the most important. And as you may recall, we got sidetracked a little bit last week, and I, I, could, I, I almost did predict it, but I was contacted. I did get a Twitter message uh, from a Lutheran, and I told you. So there's some Lutherans that will complain wildly about this, but the general term used... Uh, to describe Luther's doctrine as consubstantiated. Well, it, it doesn't matter how clearly you go. The general term used, there are Lutherans who disagree. doesn't matter. As long as you say it, oh, you know what you're talking about. You know, it's like, okay, okay, okay. And, and like I said, with Luther, and they also objected the idea that there are many Lutheranisms or that Melanchthon, and it's like, I'll leave that to you guys. I think it's just really obvious, and uh, but I'm not interested in Arguing with you about it, I've had one, there's one Lutheran guy that's just been hankering for a debate on baptism with him forever on the Lutheran view of baptism. It's like, I just don't have any interest. I, I, don't, I don't feel any compulsion to, to debate every topic known to man. I, if, if, I don't have, if I don't have an interest in it, why, you know, find somebody who actually finds it to be interesting. I don't want to debate baptism with Lutherans. Uh, I, you know, I mean, just the amount of time it would take to define which Luther we're talking about would be, you know, would pretty much exhaust our time. I'm just not interested to find somebody who is. But I have to be interested in whatever I'm told to be interested in. So anyway, um, we had jumped the track because we had read the section in Ignatius's epistle to the Smyrnians about um, the uh, flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ and, and the abuse of that text in modern Roman Catholic apologetics. And once we provide the background, then we understand why the Gnostics refused uh, to view the Lord's Supper appropriately is because they rejected the physical incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, they did not believe that Christ had taken on human flesh and therefore the idea of memorializing flesh and blood is, is going to be rejected by them. And uh, so once again, just when you, when you see things, well, if you see anything online, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm a person who posts a lot of stuff online, but if you see anything online, 99.9% um, .9 of it's being cut and pasted from someplace else. And it's, it's pretty rare. You know, I, I mean, I have, you know, this is, this is a pretty decent source here, but I'm reading a translation of the Greek text, uh, you know, we can go into the Greek text, but the Greek text has been passed down, and there can be textual variants in the Greek text and things like that. So, uh, almost all of us, you know, we have to deal with secondary sources, but we need to keep that in mind. And uh, I, I just, I just encounter so many people today, and it really concerns me. They'll contact me, and oh, I, I love everything you do, but this guy told me X, Y, and Z, and Man, he's just totally blown me away. Like, like one thing, 
and all of a sudden they're they're teetering. I, it reminds me a little bit. Um, anybody ever been to Mexican Hat? Is it Utah? You, you know what I'm talking about there uh, uh, near Monument Valley. Um, and uh, it's really not anything big and major. It's a big old hat on top of a little. It's a big old rock on top of a little rock, which eventually some big old storm's going to probably knock over, and there won't be any Mexican hat left. But uh, but it's just it's just a big round. It looks like it's a sombrero, okay? And so it's a big old rock that's sitting on a little rock, which you wouldn't expect it to have been that way. Uh, and so they have a little. You can pull off and buy a Coke, and you know, it's just, it's just really about all there is there. Um, uh, but that's, that's sort of, that's sort of you know, people making a really huge, big deal out of just a little thing, and, and, and it, they, they seem, they, they just seem really tenuous in their faith, that, that easily blown about, uh, like one big old storm's going to knock that thing right off that, what it's sitting on, and that concerns me. I'm not saying we shouldn't think about challenges and think about them seriously and stuff like that, but the, the speed with which people are just, uh, I saw something on Facebook. It's like, okay, uh, it does make me start wondering if maybe that's what Jesus was referring to. Will I find faith on the earth? Uh, and you, really start, you really start wondering. Um, okay, one other thing to mention uh, here since we're in the Smyrnians and we will see this developing later on. This becomes really important. And again, I've noticed something. Whenever I mention Roman Catholicism, we jump track because everybody has all sorts of questions. Uh, many of you have family members or are yourselves former Roman Catholics. Or uh, I, I should mention on Tuesday, Lord willing, uh, we're going to be doing something on the dividing line. Uh, William Lane Craig just put out a video um, with comments on Roman Catholicism that I think are really illustrative of the, really the collapse of evangelical distinctives when it comes to the gospel that we're experiencing in our day. And I'll be addressing that on, on uh, Tuesday. So it's, it's a live topic. There's, there's no two ways about it. And as we uh, get pushed closer and closer to the Roman Catholics in the sense that in our society, the space for us to exist and express ourselves is going to become smaller and smaller. Uh, we already know Facebook is editing things and deleting posts and YouTube does the same thing and, and uh, it's, it's just going to become more and more overt uh, over time. And as we get pushed closer and closer, we're going to have to think more and more clearly about our relationship and for the majority of those who call themselves evangelicals today, since they've adopted a, since they don't even realize this, but when it comes to what the, the dividing line, soteriologically speaking, was in the Reformation, they've already crossed over to the Roman side of that. They're already synergists. Uh, they already believe in a universal atonement. Um, they, they already have, you know, uh, Luther, in his debate with Erasmus on the nature of the will, said, you alone of my, my critics have put your, your finger upon the real issue, the, the hinge upon which it all turns, was the sovereignty of God and the depravity of man. And they recognized it. And the vast majority of evangelicals have already paddled over to the other side of the Tiber. They just haven't bothered to get out on the other side because they don't like the smells and bells and, and uh, uh, the 
funny hats and, and stuff like that. But on the real issue, uh, they've already crossed over that side. And uh, so as we get pushed closer and closer, uh, this mere Christianity stuff is going to take more and more hold, I think. Uh, so it is relevant for us to understand some of the key issues. And the very next section, section 8 of Ignatius's epistle to Smyrnians, reads as follows. But shun divisions as the beginning of evil, of evils. Do, uh, do ye all follow your bishop as Jesus Christ followed the Father, and the presbytery as the apostles, and do the deacons pay respect as to God's commandment? Let no man do aught of things pertaining to the church apart from the bishop. Let that be held a valid Eucharist, which is under the bishop, or one to whom he shall have committed it. Whatsoever the bishop, sh wheresoever the bishop shall appear, there let the people be. Even as where Jesus may be, there is the universal church. It is not lawful apart from the bishop, either to baptize or to hold a love feast, but whatsoever he shall approve, this is well-pleasing also to God, that everything which ye do may be sure and valid. So, here we have a term that we don't generally use a whole lot, but it's obviously a biblical term. And it brings us back to the issue of what is the uh, New Testament form of the church and recognizing that within a fairly short period of time, there were other forms of church government that developed. Uh, why did that happen? What were these other forms of church government? And how do we handle all these things? Now, we generally don't spend much time thinking about church government unless we run afoul of it. Um, the vast majority of people join churches without giving a second thought. The vast majority of Baptists, for example, have been accustomed to a single pastor model uh, where you have a single pastor and then you have deacons. Uh, that's certainly what I was raised with. And I had never really been challenged about it until I got into seminary and some seminary class, probably church history. I was again forced to, I was forced for the first time actually to think about it and I started reading the New Testament and it's like, well, um, every time it talks about these, uh, what became very quickly, very easy to see that bishop, Paul used the term bishop and bishops here, and here it's presbyter and presbyters and pastor and pastors, and it became very clear very quickly these were interchangeable terms. They may have had slightly different nuances depending on the context they're being used, but the, the requirements for uh, the eldership, the elders, the presbyters, the bishops, they all mean the same thing. They're interchangeable. And deacons, the ministers who minister to the needs of the people uh, in the church, it's similar requirements, but, but not the same. They don't, they don't have the same function. And it became really clear to me very quickly just by looking at the New Testament that the New Testament model was a plurality of elders, not just one. Now, I had been raised with a different perspective, but it wasn't like, in, in most of those situations, you're raised with a perspective, and it's what you imbibe, but you're never really told what the other perspectives are. You're just told, you, you just sort of imbibe the idea of distrusting any, any other way of doing it. So the assumption is they're wrong, but I've never really thought and figured out why they are. Now, I'm not going to take time to go into all the biblical stuff if you want to read that. Uh, I don't know if we have them in the back, but uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I forget how long ago it was. Um, 
a uh, uh, Five Views of Church Government book came out from Broadman Holman, and uh, I'm the one that wrote the uh, plurality of elders perspective. And uh, the book as a whole is okay. Unfortunately, uh, there were only two of us that were actually really committed to our perspective, and, and everybody else is sort of like, I sort of think it goes, you know, it might be that, it might be that, but I, I sort of think this is the best way to go type thing, and it's like, okay, whatever. Um, but there were two of us who, were, who really sort of debated each other and had the longest responses to each other and stuff like that. It was myself and Robert Raymond, uh, the late Robert Raymond, uh, the Presbyterian scholar who joined the OPC before his death. And uh, so he and I went, went back and forth because that was the real debate, was is there a, a level of church government above the local church, above the, the, the presbyters and deacons? Um, and, you know, he went to Acts chapter 15 and la, 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 la. And so if you want to read a discussion of all of that, uh, that's available in the Five Views of Church Government book. Uh, that's still available out there if you want to if you want to track that down. Uh, so, uh, just starting with the I, I think the and if if you, if you want to see another perspective of it, sometime in the early 2000s I think uh, it was one of the last of the great debates on Long Island. So you know 2003 2004 somewhere around there, uh, I debated Mitch Paqua on the priesthood. And so there you have an interesting discussion in regards to, from the Roman Catholic perspective, how uh, the office of bishop became disconnected from the office of presbyter, even though biblically they're just, they're absolutely interchangeable, um, and how presbyter turned into a priest. Uh, there is simply nothing in the New Testament to either make that distinction or to give any indication of presbyters or priests sacramental priests, um, and I knew I'd forget to do this, and I'll still forget to do this, even though I'll, I'm going to ask Kelly to remind me to do this when we get home, but, um, and it's probably too late to grab it, but uh, I think it was a week ago Friday, so maybe I still might be able to grab it. Uh, there was a guest on Catholic Answers Live talking about the priesthood, and he was talking about how if you're ordained as a priest, there's this mark placed upon your soul. And even if you cease being a priest, even if you leave the Roman Catholic Church, you can still validly do the Eucharist. Remember I told you about that last week, I think. And I, 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 I wanted to grab that so we could play it on the, on the program. And if I can remember to do it before Tuesday, that would be a good thing to add to the Roman Catholic discussion, uh, even though right now the program on Tuesday would have to be about, it'd have to go to Wednesday just to cover everything we're having to, having to do, so that probably wouldn't be a good idea. Anyways, uh, you have this, you know, just incredible sacramental concept that has developed in Roman Catholicism. There's just, there's just absolutely no way you can look at the New Testament and say, yeah, that's, that's what the apostles had in mind. And no, it, it's, it's very, very, very clear. So how do you go from, well, what do we see in Clement? In Clement, we saw a group of elders. There is no bishop in that letter, writing as the bishop to the bishop at the church at Corinth. Uh, this is the church of Rome. So the, the, the moral authority of the church of Rome was found in the church, not in the bishop. What you need to understand today is the church of Rome's authority is found in its bishop. It's reversed. 
It's not what it was in the early church. And every time a pope dies, well, of course, we got spared this the last time. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that we will ever have that happen again. Um, I'm, I, I, a part of me really wonders if a whole new paradigm has been introduced uh, with the resignation that took place a few years ago. And I'm next to certain that unless something really hokey happens, uh, that that's what Francis will do too. But back when John Paul II was about to die and had died and then they had the election, the white smoke and all the rest of that stuff, Fox News especially was just, you know, had every Roman Catholic apologist in the planet on for his 15 minutes of fame. And all you kept hearing about was 2,000 years of history. This is, you know, this is the way Christ found the church, blah, 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 blah. But anybody who knows history knows that you did not have the, for the first 700 years minimally, uh, the Bishop of Rome was chosen by the people of Rome. You didn't even have cardinals develop until a later period of time. Uh, the amount of evolution and change and development is massive to anybody who knows church history. Most people don't, so that people can get away with all this silliness about well, this is you know the church of 2,000 years, blah, 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 blah. So how do you go from what you have in Clement, where you have elders in Rome, and history tells us there was no single bishop of Rome until about 140. So basically it took 100 years after the death of Christ, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe 90 years after the founding of the church of Rome, before you have the switchover from a plurality of elders to a single bishop over that church in Rome. Uh, so when Clement is written, you have multiple elders, you have a plurality of elders, and it's very clear that their big problem was the Corinthians had kicked out their elder or elders. Elders. It's always in the plural. It wasn't there was one guy over the church Corinth, one bishop, and they kicked their one bishop out. No. It was the elders, and they were being told they needed to reinstate them because they had done all this all wrong, and they were in rebellion, blah, 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 blah. So how do you go from the plurality of elders to one bishop? Well, Ignatius, coming from Antioch in the uh, first decade of the second century, he dies 108, so it's first decade, decade second century, uh, shows us the development, the beginning of what's called the monarchical dead marker. Monarchical dead marker. Oh, even worse. Uh, the monarchical episcopate. So, by this time in Antioch, there was one bishop uh, over the church in Antioch, and that's Ignatius. And it's very, very interesting that he, he writes to a fellow bishop, Polycarp, but when he writes to the Romans, when he writes to the Romans, check out how the beginning of Romans begins. Ignatius, who is also Theophorus, unto her that hath found mercy in the bountifulness of the Father Most High, and of Jesus Christ his only Son, to the church that is beloved and enlightened through the will of him who, is, who willed all things that are, 
by faith and love towards Jesus Christ our God, even unto her that hath the presidency in the country of the region of the Romans, being worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of felicitation, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy in purity, and having the presidency of love, walking the law of Christ, and bearing the Father's name, which church also I salute in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, unto them that in flesh and spirit are united unto his every commandment, being filled with the grace of God without wavering, and filtered clear from every foreign stain, abundant greeting in Jesus Christ our God in blamelessness. Now what is missing is any address to the Bishop of Rome. There is no mention of a singular Bishop of Rome, because we know historically there was no singular Bishop of Rome in that day. Rome had a different form of church government. Rome still had a plurality of elders. Uh, Ignatius represents what will eventually become the predominant view in the monarchical episcopate, but they existed side by side, and we have evidence of it within the very letters of Ignatius himself. So, once again, the, the, the Church of Rome has the presidency in the area of the Romans, but it's the Church, not the bishop. Over the next couple of centuries, especially with uh, Bishop Stephen, you're going to see a huge step toward flipping that on its head to where the power of the Church of Rome is invested in the Bishop of Rome. But the early evidence is it was the reverse of that. It was the size of the Church. It was the fact that the Church of Rome would have more contact with almost any other church than any other church because what's the old saying that we all know even to this day? All roads lead to Rome. And Rome was the, the head of of the Roman Empire, obviously. Hence, there's a tremendous amount of travel, legal, business, uh, the arts. Uh, Rome was, was central in all of these things. And so uh, you would have a large church there because it's one of the largest concentrations of population anywhere uh, in, in the world at that time. And so that church is going to have communication with more people there are going to know people from other places uh, and hence have more communication with them than, than any other. So that popularity of the church was one thing, but then once one bishop develops, then that becomes focused upon that person. What we're going to see is that the office of the papacy develops very slowly over time and in baby steps. And it takes quite some time, uh, certainly, to reach the pretensions of the 11th and 12th centuries when we see the height of papal power. Um, but it is, a, it is definitely a slow development uh, over time. So what you see in Ignatius is the focus upon the bishop as a source of unity. And for us, we may go, well, that sounds dangerous. Well... Not necessarily. I mean, we, we don't believe that people should uh, ignore the local church and just go out and have baptism parties and pools for the fun of it. Uh, we don't think that people should uh, ignore the local church and go out and buy some, uh, some grape juice or some wine and some uh, matzah bread uh, and have the Lord's Supper just for the fun of it someplace. That's sort of, you know, there's, there's churches that think you, that that's okay. Uh, we view these things as ordinances of the church, and in the New Testament, they are, they are a part of the actual practice of the church, and 
church discipline involves exclusion from these things, which if they aren't, uh, aren't being done under the organization of the church, you can't exclude people from doing it. It's just anybody can just go on and do it for the fun of it. Now, maintaining that balance is going to be difficult, and we're going to see all sorts of falling off on both sides of that uh, down through the history of the church. But remember, in 108-ish, uh, you do not have a New Testament as yet. Has it been written? Yeah. Has it been collected into one place? No. Uh, there's, there's no faxes. There's no telephones. Um, there, there's no way to have the kind of communication that we have today. And so there's going to be a time period, just as there was, for example, in the collecting of the canon, between the ending of the writing of the last book of the Old Testament, which we would think chronologically would be around Malachi, um, and Second Chronicles, which is the last of the Hebrew canon, since they organize it differently than we do, uh, and the, the coming of Christ. We call it the intertestamental period. And there weren't any angels that came down from heaven. There were... There was no time when a prophet was walking along and looked up in heaven and the clouds had formed, uh, you know, the Hebrew canon, and, uh, you know, and he was able to then report this to everybody else, and so they, they came up with the Hebrew canon. There was a process amongst God's people where that canon became recognized and certain books were excluded, other books were laid up in the temple. That was how their holiness was recognized, and the only books that were ever laid up in the temple are the very books that we possess in the Old Testament today. Um, and so if, you, if there is about a 400-year period for the Old Testament, well, historically, when we look at the New Testament, uh, the first full canon list that we have in the New Testament, historically, full, exactly as we have it today, uh, is around 369, so about 400 years, a little bit less than that. We have some partial lists that go back to about 180. They're about 85, 90% complete. Uh, but full list as we have today is uh, Athanasius's 39th Festal Letter, about 369, as I recall off the top of my head. I don't have that in front of me at the moment. But So you have a, a, similar, a similar development of, of, of that going on, that very same time period. And so... This is what we're looking at when we look at these early movements uh, and, and start seeing developments. And that, uh, so you can have two different view perspectives existing side by side. And there's nothing, I, I don't see anything in Ignatius's letters where he's trying to convince the Romans they've got it wrong. But there would have been a recognition on his part. There is no corresponding single bishop to my office in Rome. So they would have recognized that there were two different perspectives uh, at that particular point uh, in time. So that will become important uh, in its development uh, later on. Yes? Basically, the Pope scripture is another, yes or no? Well, officially, uh, the Bishop of Rome... Right. Right. Yes, but they don't. But they wouldn't view it that way. He is he is the bishop of the Church of Rome, but they do not accept the idea that bishop and elder are the same thing. 
Biblically, it is. Biblically, yes. Yeah, but the, by, by definition, there is no one else equal to him. So you can't have a plurality of elders right, in the bishop right. of Rome. No. Okay. Wow. Uh, I'm, you, I'm abusing poor Ignatius because I keep mentioning other things we'll get to a little bit later on as we see them in Ignatius. But I think that, that's okay. Let's go to Ephesians. Um, Ignatius, who is also Theophorus. By the way, Theophorus means uh, Theos, God, uh, the the forest is is from Pharaoh to bear, so it literally means God bearer, the one uh, uh, bearing God, and and so it would mean the idea that God dwells within someone or or something along, not in the sense that they're incarnate or something like that, but the idea of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, something like that. Ignatius, who is also Theophorus under her, which hath been blessed in greatness through the plenitude of God the Father which hath been foreordained before the ages to be forever unto abiding and unchangeable glory, united and elect in a true passion by the will of the Father and of Jesus Christ, our God, even unto the church which is in Ephesus of Asia, worthy, worthy of all felicitation, abundant greeting in Christ Jesus, and in blameless joy. Once again, no single bishop mentioned. Certainly when we read uh, uh, the epistle, well, the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation, same thing. Uh, in Acts 20, Paul does not call the bishop of the church of Ephesus to him. He calls the elders of the church of Ephesus. But important thing to see, you saw it in Romans. We'll see it again. You have it here in Ephesians. Jesus Christ, our God. You, for, 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 if, you've, if you've never spent much time with Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims or whoever else, um, that may not say much to you, and you may be like, okay, great. Uh, but I just, I just remember when a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses years and years ago, we used to have an office down on Camelback uh, around 7th Avenue. I, I don't know how they did this, but these two Jehovah's Witnesses were going door to door and decided to wander into a business, decided to wander into our offices, uh, which I found very humorous. Um, and so started talking to these folks, and in, in a very short period of time, uh, they, they actually had the temerity to say, well, no one really believed in the doctrine of the Trinity until the 12th century. Now, normally what I hear is the Council of Nicaea. That's what you hear all the time. You, you know, it's because it's on the web. You know, it's, it's probably in Wikipedia somewhere. Um, uh, that's what you hear all the time. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity was made up the Council of Nicaea. But it really blew me away. They said, well, no one really believed until the 12th century. And I probably grabbed this very book because, uh, you know, the date on it was, yeah, pretty early. And I probably grabbed this very book and read him a few quotes from Ignatius. And, you know, he's 11 centuries before that, you know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I, I emphasize this because of how often it is, it is pounded into our minds that this stuff is all uh, later development and, and so on and so forth, and it's... And it's right here. Um, there is interesting, the, the name of one of the deacons of, of the church is known to Ignatius. Burris was his, was his name. Um, uh, and there, actually, there is a bishop, but he's not named. Um, I'm sorry. Seeing then that in God's name I received your whole multitude. Oh, okay, this is, this is actually someone else. Um, that is, that is mentioned, but Onesimus is a bishop, 
but there seems to be other bishops there. Uh, but they are to honor the bishops. There's more talk, talk about bishops and the importance of bishops. Um, yeah, there seems to be a bunch of people that he knew by name. Onesimus, Burrus, Euplus, Fronto, uh, and they are encouraged to be in submission to them, but you'll notice there's a number of people listed there. But what I wanted to get to is simply one, uh, in section 9, you have uh, this, but I have learned that certain persons passed through you from yonder bringing evil doctrine, whom you suffered not to sow seed in you, for you stopped your ears so that you might not receive the seed sown by them, for as much as you are stones of a temple which were prepared beforehand for a building of God the Father, being hoisted up, listen to this, prepared beforehand for a building of God the Father, being hoisted up to the heights through the engine of Jesus Christ, which is the cross, and using for a rope the Holy Spirit, while your faith is your windlass and love is the way that leadeth up to God. So then you, you are all companions in the way, carrying your God and your, and your shrine, your Christ and your holy things, being arrayed from head to foot in the, in the commandments of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the church, not the church and buildings, because they didn't really have buildings at this point in time. Obviously, if you're talking about building this church, it's stones and people and so, uh, the stones of the people and so on and so forth. But notice the, notice the phraseology. God the Father, being hoisted up to the heights of the engine of Jesus Christ, which is the cross, and using for a rope the Holy Spirit. So you have the same kind of easy Trinitarian language that you find, well, interestingly enough, in Ephesians. It's very plain that Ignatius did know the epistle to the Ephesians. He, he's making purposeful allusions to it, uh, in his uh, in the language that he's using, um, but you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here in their different roles in building up the church uh, in section nine. But before section nine comes what I think is is one of the most important sections. Um, just for your notes. Uh, for our God, Jesus Christ, was conceived in the room of Mary, is in section 18. Uh, section uh, 19, the ancient kingdom was pulled down when God appeared in the likeness of man unto newness of everlasting life. So there's a number of places where just in ease of, of language, Ignatius refers to the deity of Christ. There can be no question. Remember, I told you, I think last week, that when the Jehovah's Witnesses tried to misrepresent Ignatius years and years ago, they, they only quoted from the pseudo-Ignatian epistles. They didn't quote from the real epistles because there, there, there was just no way around the fact that this, this guy was not one of Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, There's nothing about Jesus being Michael the Archangel or anything else. And so they just completely lied to their people uh, and obviously have never repented of such, such things. But for me, I think one of the deepest Christological statements in all of the patristic writings is found in section 7 of Ignatius's epistle to the Ephesians. Um, here's, here's the phrase, here's the, the sentence. There is only one physician of flesh and of spirit, generate and ingenerate, God in man, true life in death, son of Mary and son of God, 
first passable and then impassable, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, there is only one physician of flesh and of spirit. Generate, that is the physical aspect of Christ, is not eternal, but came into being at a point in time. And ingenerate, but the Son has eternally existed as God. God in man. I mean, that is, that's as close to God-man as you're going to get. Um, and yet, this is, what, hundred and almost 120 years uh, prior to uh, the Council of Nicaea. An anthropotheos. In man, God. God and man um, is, is the phraseology that's used there. God and man, true life in death. So, once again, you remember, remember in the section 9, uh, being hoisted up to the heights of the engine of Jesus Christ, which is what? Which is the cross. And so, guess who's brought that up a few times when debating Muslims who deny the crucifixion? and say that uh, this is something that developed at a later time and, and uh, that it never really happened. Well, uh, all, all of the earliest sources are unanimous that Jesus Christ died on a cross under Pontius Pilate. All of them. The, the Quran is completely in opposition to, to all of the, for the first hundred years, anything that was written on the subject. And then the only time there's any denial of that after that is due to Gnosticism. And why would that be? Uh, they don't deny that the cross took place. They just don't believe Jesus had a physical body. So it couldn't have been him that was up there anyway. So there's the weird theological reason for denying it. There was no, no reason to historically deny uh, the cross whatsoever. True life and death, son of Mary and son of God. I mean, we believe in the hypostatic union. We believe that Jesus Christ was one person with two natures. And here you have... One physician, but he's son of Mary and son of God. So you have the physical, uh, you have the divine, first passable and then impassable. Um, passable would be uh, subject to, to suffering. So he takes human flesh and is therefore subject to suffering, but then impassable. Resurrected, no longer subject to death. Jesus Christ, our Lord. I, to be perfectly honest with you, I think it would be pretty rare if we asked most modern theologians to express in a single sentence the great truths of the person of Jesus Christ. I, I don't know how you could really improve upon this very much. And this is 108. This is not a man who graduated from seminary. Uh, this is not someone who has all the refre reflections of Augustine and the Cappadocian Fathers and Athanasius and all the rest of this. Um, the idea that once you get to the Council of Nicaea, well, just now people started thinking about the deity of Christ. 
Uh, just now it became, you know, it was just this, you know, these people were taking the Christian faith away from the simplicity of the, of the, you know, human Jesus stuff. This is what you can be told in the universities and sadly seminaries and everything else. I don't know how they come up with it in light of the, not only the biblical evidence, but the historical evidence, but there you go. One more time, there is only one physician of flesh and of spirit, generate and ingenerate, God and man, true life and death, son of Mary and son of God, first passable and impassable, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's worthy of memorization, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and that is Ignatius to the Ephesians section 7, uh, followed by section 9, with God the Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, you have the Trinitarian language there. Certainly in many debates, that's where I have gone immediately when challenged. Oh, give us some evidence that this is ever believed before the Council of Nicaea. Okay, how about in the first generation after the apostles? It's, it's right there. And uh, yes, sir? Oh, they ignore it. <laughs> just, just because you give an answer doesn't mean there's going to be a response. Uh, generally, if you give a strong answer, they will pretend they asked you a different question. <laughs> so... Uh, I, I've, I've not gotten about the, the only thing I can, and it didn't happen in a debate, but the only thing that I've seen is on the part of some folks to try to argue that Ignatius was a modalist. And I just go, what? He makes clear differentiation between father and son. It, it's, he's, the, the idea that he's a modalist just seems absurd to me, but that's about the only thing I've, anyone's ever come up with is... A modalist is a person who believes, who denies the Trinity by saying that there is only one person of God who exists in different modes of being. And so uh, one form of modalism would be that God existed as the Father, then he, then he began to exist as the Son, and now he exists as the Spirit. That's the most simple version of modalism. Um, modalism exists today primarily in what's called the Jesus Only or Oneness Pentecostal Movement, the United Pentecostal Church International based in St. Louis. And their view is that there is only one person of God, the Father. The Son was just the human aspect of Jesus, and the Son's not eternal. So Jesus was two persons. He was the Father and the Son. Uh, the, the Father indwelt the physical body, and therefore Jesus' prayer life was him talking to himself. Um, and now the Father has transitioned into the role of the Spirit uh, indwelling us. But there's just one person. So it's called, we'll, we'll get into this, but dynamic monarchianism and uh, modalism, Sabellianism, there's all sorts of different terms that are used. And unfortunately, in my experience, the vast majority of evangelicals, out of ignorance, not out of conviction, are modalists. Because they don't know it. It's not because that, well, it's just, that's just obvious what the Bible teaches. No, it's not. But out of ignorance, if you think the water, if you think the I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother illustration illustrates Trinity, you are a modalist. <laughs> Guess what? You're a heretic. Uh, we will deal with you later. Um, uh, and I think we're reading the section on the Trinity in the confession next week, which should healthily, uh, hopefully c correct you anyways. But don't worry. We're get, we'll get into all that stuff uh, as, we, uh, as we move through this, okay? All right, let's close the time for prayer. Father, we do thank you once again for this freedom and opportunity we have. We thank you that we um, are not the first generation, that we have so many who have gone before us and have left us testimony of their faithfulness. May we live lives that will give uh, signposts and encouragement to those who come after us. Be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.